Hello everyone, welcome to From No to Nothing Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover on the show, feel free to email us at fromnowertonothingpodcast at gmail.com or contact us on our Facebook page. As humans, we have the ability to ponder some questions that are far beyond us. We want to believe that we find some answers, but as embedded as we are in our limited bodies and minds, the answers can often seem indecipherable. Perhaps the best example of these questions surrounds our origins, where humans came from, where life came from, and where the universe came from. And while we could spend multiple episodes delving into the minutiae of some of these theories, and maybe we will, this isn't that episode. <laughs> Today, we want to give a broad overview of cosmogony and ask some questions related to the holistic theme. Nice introduction. Yeah, so um, cosmogony is, is sort of interesting. We've talked in the past about, um, you know, uh, some metaphysical topics that are kind of similar, but I feel like they have a more um, more scientific bend to them. Whereas cosmogony is can be interpreted in in a, in a few different ways. Yeah, so why don't you it's sort of tripartite, isn't it? It's 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 the storytelling, yeah, of the origin of the universe. It's it's the physics, and I I would say that the physics sometimes. Is, in presenting itself in lay terms to most of us, ends up storytelling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then there's the metaphysical. And so the physics, I don't know, I'm in a mood. The physics is uh, studying the rules of how things that we see work. I can just hear cringing already. <laughs> <laughs> metaphysics is uh, studying how things we don't see might work. Mm -hmm. And and the third part is the storytelling, just uh, trying to put in human terms that which we cannot understand, as you just said. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, cosmogony might not be a word that many people are familiar with. So, why don't you want to give us a definition? Yep. Um, which you've, you've uh, it really uh, hewn to right at the, from the start. It's the study of the origin of the universe. Now, it used to be defined as the study of the origin of the galaxy, or the study, it can be applied to how do things come about, but really the universal scheme uh, is is the point of focus, um, and and how it how it came about. And so you can just say, okay, but we're going to talk just about scientific cosmogony, which would be interesting, but that's not really it. That's not all the totality of it, mm -hmm. and so. And the, and the etymology of it, of course, is, I'm always fascinated with the etymology, is, uh, is interesting because it's, it really goes back into the 1500s, which the last conversation we had was sort of the, the locusts in that time period. And it's about, it, it can mean, be translated from the Greek in various ways, but one of them is uh, order begetting hmm. or world begetting. Well, begetting suggests creation and, and, and so on, but it also suggests a very anthropomorphic view. But order, which of course implies chaos. Ah, what, once things started getting put in order, that's the beginning of things. But it's really not because 
<laughs> yeah, this, I mean, this immediately makes us think of our talk on uh, Boltzmann brains and, and entropy, right? You yep. know, we think of, and that's part of what makes this conversation so interesting that I was trying to allude to in the intro is that our ideas of um, beginnings and, you know, revolve around order and order is essentially a low entropy state. But that's that's really just an imaginary line that we're drawing yep. because of our own experience, the way that we experience things inside of our own bodies and with our our minds. We like to think of that as being um, a neutral state or, you know, an objective or, a, you know, state or something, but it's really not. It's just have, a useful, arbitrary, temporary buoy in the unending ocean. Oh, well, we think we know this. We think we know that there's some unsafe stuff down here or, or you better travel a little slowly around this, this uh, little extension of land into the water. But we really don't know absolutely. There may be something <laughs> else there. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's like that. And, and so the storytelling uh, part is off is, uh, sometimes referred to as, uh, the religious cosmogony. And, and I understand why, because really when you're trying to, when cultures, back to the beginnings of communication, which we've visited upon occasion, when they start um, telling stories about where they came from, then the cosmogony is very in, uh, illustrative about uh, the characteristics of that culture and, and uh, aspects of if there is a completeness of that culture, what that culture is about. And so it's anthropological or sociological as much as it is, uh, uh, it's scientific, but it's also narrative based. But we, we also, uh, for me, there's a side, there's a, there's the religious cosmogony, but then there's, I would put slash and, science fictional cosmogony, where there are all kinds of stories that fantasy and science fiction put out about how the universe in a particular story was created. Hmm. And that can be an enacting of, of a, a religious or theological element of a story being told, but sometimes not. Yeah. It's just, well, this is how it happened. Okay. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, you know, for the listener's sake to um, differentiate between cosmology and cosmo com cosmogony, because they may not have heard of cosmogony, but most people have heard of cosmology. And if you do a Google search, often it'll just go right immediately to cosmology. Yeah, yeah. And that's really not the same. You know, cosmology is the, is the study of the universe, um, whereas cosmogony is the study of how the universe came into being, which are two very different things, right? If I... You know, I could right. study, well, as you have been doing much of this week, right? I could study a truck engine, right? <laughs> but that's different from studying the origin of the engine, right? You know, and one of those things is much harder to do, right? Because you can look at an engine and study it and figure out how it works. But if you try to figure out how this thing evolved, right? What was the human thought process and what were the, the earlier iterations where it came from? You go, 
oh, how do you get back to where this thing started? Yes, yeah, so and then you get into all kinds of blasphemy about uh, the uh, implied capital E, the plurality of capital E engineers, which <laughs> might as well be the creator of this. And what were these engineers thinking? They weren't thinking about people using it, or they didn't ever intended for us to be in monkeying around with the engine. Oh, we should leave creation alone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there are many things one can say about engineers of Ford engines. <laughs> the engineers are deists. They're they're uh, <laughs> they're watchmaker. <laughs> they set it in motion, let it go, and they don't worry about the. Main. Let's just, yeah, let's put all this together and we'll, somebody else can deal. <laughs> so cosmology, cosmogony, one is the study of, of how things are and one is the study of how they came to be. So what are some of the earliest cosmogonic myths that we have access to? Well, there's quite a, there's, there's I, I brought a book uh, today called In the Beginning, Creation Stories from Around the World. Uh, just uh, as an, one example of so many compilations, when I was in college long ago, uh, in, involved with Reader's Theater, I put together a script of creation stories, which is why this this whole topic is always interesting to me. And there's been a not a contest formally, but vying for who was first what was the oldest story as if because that's the competitive nature of humanity as right? if that gives it any more weight <laughs> right exactly and and so i won't i won't attempt to say who was first because when we're talking about as as we have in past episodes about humanity not being necessarily ten thousand years old but maybe up to as words of a hundred thousand years and uh, who was first was whomever uh, in in their own locus and locality, put uh, worked with cuneiform or or in some way recorded the story. Well, that's one arbitrary way of choosing who was first. But cultures based on orality were telling stories long before the little etchings happened. So I don't know, but <laughs> but there there are plentiful examples. Um, there's a there's one that is a Sumerian Genesis story. That is one of the oldest, uh, going back to a couple thousand years or, or there around thereabouts, and and it 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 is very similar to the later Genesis story that people become more familiar with, but there was a flood. Uh, there, the, there's a person who emerges having been saved from the flood and somehow the world goes on again. And there are all kinds of questions with that too. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, there, the, the Finnish have a, um, Kavala, 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 the Finnish, um, mythic story about, uh, truly a giant bird that lays an egg and that's the universe or the world. Uh, native, Indigenous First Nation cultures are replete with variations of very interesting, wondrous creation stories. Some creation stories about a flat world, some creation stories about there's all darkness and then people come up from a whole, you know, from a previous world up into the this now world. So it's mm. not coming from above, it's coming from below. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of there's a lot of variation, but they tend to fall into some categories, yes, right? They with, do. with flood narratives and cosmic eggs and, and some of these things yeah. um, being represented around the world. And I think that 
you know, some people's obsession with the who was first is it's the same obsession with cosmogony in general, right? Cosmogony, the whole the whole point of it and the whole thing that interests us is what happened in the beginning, right? Yeah. And I think yep. that the trying to find who has the first story is who's the closest to the beginning of the storytelling, right? So even exactly. though it it's not going to hold any weight, right? Because those people were still immensely far away from the beginning of time and they didn't have a scientific theory to speak of or any way of knowing. There's something about it that's sort of interesting to think, okay, well, here are these people 4,000 years ago or whatever, and here's our, our first access into what they thought happened, the beginning of what we thought of as the beginning and right. there's something intri intriguing about it. There, it it is intriguing and, it, and it's not it's not at all unlike the, the the physics model where we say wow we can see back now with our james webb uh, scope to within many hundred million years of beginning of time mm. It's quite as an expanse, really. You know, okay, yeah, much better than we used to be, but uh, somebody's going to do better than that pretty soon, <laughs> and so that's going to put. But the subcategories of cosmogonic stories are really you. You brought up the the subcategories. There, there, there are all kinds of names for these, uh, uh, where the the universe is created by uh, uh, some kind of consummation of divine beings. And there's the universe, or, or uh, uh, secretions of, of various elements happen, and the universe comes together. Or um, a, a being, a supernatural being, dives into the waters of the void and pulls the world up. Mm. Or uh, the world emerges from the water without anybody pulling it up, those <laughs> the waters of the darkness and the void. Or, uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, or there, there are steps, which reminds me of, of your novel. Uh, but there, there are, so uh, in, in a number of traditions, it's first we have these beings that come out of nothingness, and then they create a set of lower order gods to worship them and keep them company and serve them. And then those gods, uh, usually uh, the good guys and the bad guys <laughs> fight and make a mess and they create their own and then we end up with people <laughs> whose purpose is to uh, worship and to serve that which is above them <laughs> and that's where it becomes so so to me limited and um, reflective of the constant need for hierarchical order people to be in power and people to be in, not in power and to serve the people that are in power it's just reflected in the olympian scope of things yeah there's sort of this paradoxical thing happening with some of those stories right so at this point we're talking about religious cosmogenies um where yeah they follow this this kind of tropish trend where you have you know a supreme deity and then there's lower deities or angels or something like this and then so men are, are sort of low on the hierarchical ladder in these stories but then part of the story is that men seem to have some power over everything else right whereas from a scientific paradigm you look at it 
And if you look at nature, it seems as if humans might be the most advanced species that there is anywhere. And yet we feel powerless and alone and vulnerable in the chaos that is reality, right? So it's, it's very paradoxical the way that a religious paradigm and a scientific paradigm in terms of cosmo cosmogonic stories sort of contrast. Yeah, yeah, it's a wonderful word, isn't it? Cosmogonic and co cosmological and cos it, it's, it's hard to get them out. <laughs> it's what, it really, no, it, it is. So do you want to give a, a, a brief sort of overview of the scientific theory of cosmogenesis sure. that we have? That we have currently, I mean, it, 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 as you as you well know, and, and we've mentioned this many times. I think right now, the the the, the story du jour, the, the the favored view for all kinds of good physics reasons, is the 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 universe emerged from a singularity, total com totally compressed. <laughs> there it is. Kind of in advance, uh, 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 not a modification of the Big Bang, but like the next step. It's not mm. the same because it seems now from the evidence that we have that everything popped from this just utterly compressed pinpoint. But then it went into slow motion. <laughs> Mm. It went into slow motion enough to allow things to develop, and then it started moving faster again. But, yeah. Uh, all right. That wasn't the original story. <laughs> the, the original story, in, well, the original story, the, the, the cosmogony of my youth was the Big Bang, and things flew outward, and they were going to fly outward until they lost the momentum and then gravity was going to pull them all back in and they were going to collapse again and then explode. It's not completely different now, but there's been a lot of additional uh, theorizing based on what we see. Yeah, and that, that sort of theory isn't completely ruled out. That's the big bounce. Mm -hmm. um, but really, just the point we're at, we don't have enough data to know what's going to happen no. based off of our measurements of dark energy, which is, you know, something that as dark in implies, we don't understand completely, right? Because, right. yeah, the, the beginning of the universe is very interesting. So you have the singularity at the beginning, which already makes some physicists skeptical, right? Because they don't like infinities in the math. Oh, infinite density. They go, ah, oh, well, if you see an infinity in the math, that's just a placeholder for us needing better theories to right, understand what right, happened. Yeah. So already, right at the beginning, we are unsure. There's a mystery, right? But then from that point, you have the, the inflationary epoch, right? Which you think epoch, you think long spans of time, <laughs> but really we're talking in a fraction of a second, right? It goes from being a point of space smaller than an atom to, to hundreds, hundreds of thousands of light years. Yep. Um, so that's the inflationary epoch where the all of the laws of physics, you know, your gravity and your electromagnetism and strong nuclear force, all those things were combined and then they separate and the universe expands very rapidly and then slows way down. And then it slows, slowly expands for a while. And now over time, about halfway through the universe's life, so about 6 billion years ago, all of a sudden it started to speed up again. Yeah. 
So when you think about it, it's, it's something that is hard to wrap the human mind around because when we observe physics in our everyday lives, we don't really see anything like this in the natural world, right? If you had water, you wouldn't see a drop of water suddenly explode into a puddle and then slowly seep into a bigger puddle, then suddenly start expanding into a, a pond at a, right. a more rapid rate. You know, you Nor go. Or would oh. you see continents sliding apart and then moving such that they're going to collide again? Yeah. Because of the scope of time. Right. But we think we know that that's what has happened. Yeah. And what will happen. But no, to the, the, the daily eye, no. So, yeah. So that's kind of, that's the story that the empirical data is pointing towards. But and it's so pointing to even more, more, more complexity, though. We have yeah. to say this. And I, I'm interrupting you, but then you can finish that. I, because, you know, I, I don't know if you, if, if with the business, you, you are always off, often, always on top of things, really. Uh, that the, the sheer size of black holes at the center of galaxies has been discussed a lot yeah. this week in yep. articles and so on. A, 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 const, a, well, a construct, a natural formation, I guess, that is billions the size of our sun. I, that's really hard to uh, imagine, and mm. it's at the center of many galaxies. So something happens in physics that makes that. But then we talked recently. We talked about this I, the idea that uh, seems to be taking hold as well that. Within a black hole, or or smaller black holes, there is the prob possibility to maybe even the probability of a universe that is uh, taken in and then develops itself within yeah. that black hole. Well, and that's, we weren't talking about that when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, and I don't even know if we talked about that on the air. That might have been a conversation you and I had outside of the podcast. But yeah, yeah. it was, um, it's part of simulation theory where, you know, if you look at the math, you go, okay, well, the Big Bang singularity has the exact same physics as a, a black hole. That seems awfully coincidental, awfully suspicious. And so you ask the question, well, could we be living inside of a black hole? Could the universe be inside of a black hole? And then the edges of the universe are the event horizon somewhere out there, but it's expanding so quickly that we'll never be able to reach the edges of them the same way that anything that gets sucked into a black hole does, right? And, uh, you know, science says, well, that's a distinct possibility. But where the simulation theory comes in is that so if you look at the the numbers, and of course, all of this is way beyond me or you or most people, but mm -hmm. in layman's terms, right? If you look at the numbers and then you try to imagine what would be outside of that outside of that event horizon, mm -hmm. what you see is kind of the same thing as a metallic sphere or a, like a mirrored sphere. And what that does is all the light just bends around it to focus something that's outside of it. So simulation theory, what we've talked about in the past, um, there are some theories that look at it as, oh, well, aliens or advanced humans are running simulations and we're sort of the, the output of that. But also simulation theory could be as simple as 
No, there's no supreme beings or advanced beings that are running a simulation of us, but we are just a reflection of an outside universe that's being magnified into this one, right? Yeah, there may be no hand in it. It's just how the system works. Right. In which case, it's kind of like rather than there being some overarching thing, it's more like you just put a mirror on either side of you and you look and then you just kind of go on infinitely <laughs> in either direction, right? That's why Men in Black is so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> so how do shifting cosmogonic baselines affect us on a personal level? So we've talked about <laughs> Boltzmann brains right. you know, and how shifting baselines of, um, you know, that type affect us. We've talked about uh, shifting climate baselines and how those affect us. How do our stories about the origin of time affect us on a personal level? Because I know there's a lot of people out there, right? That as soon as you tar start talking about this stuff, they go, well, what does it matter? We're here now, right? It doesn't, right, none of that stuff right, means right, anything. Right. But I think there's a case to be made that people who do think about these kind of things, the story that they tell themselves about the beginning really does impact them. Uh, I, I, I think so. And, and uh, I, I have this personal notion that I occasionally nurture that the, the people who say, what does it matter? We're here now. Um, to me, that's like whistling in the dark when you're going through the woods and go, da, 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 da. Mm. there are no monsters out there. There are no bears going to be me. We're fine because, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we do that as human beings. Mm. If, if to, well, Nietzsche said, if you stare into the abyss long enough, the abyss stares back mm. at you. And sometimes, i got to show you a photograph about that today that I took when I was photographing the stars a few nights ago. Um, because there was a, 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 my art teacher calls it kind of like, it looks sort of like a, a grouper fish, but it's, mm. it's sort of, the stars were in the right point in, in an opening in the clouds. And the clouds were picking up the, this, the moon was so bright. It was drawing colors out of the clouds. It looks like a giant Jack Kirby Marvel, um, creature face that it's not threatening. It's just sort of going, hmm. And, <laughs> but it, it, looking at it long enough, it was first it was cool. And it was, that's a bit unsettling. And then, and then, yeah, but it was just a pattern my, my brain is making. But, but the point is that's answering your question really. We, we, the stories we tell ourselves or that we, listen to that others with knowledge scientifically are telling us i, I don't know they affect me they tell they, they, uh, uh, on a daily basis because one thinks about this not all the time i'm not a practicing scientist but i but one thinks about this because one should what 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 does it mean for us if we are a simulation of, of a, a naturally made simulation what is what does it mean for us to to think about the idea of the block that we've mentioned before and so every moment is is recorded so to speak in this fabric of space and time and so maybe we do this all again uh which goes back to things like hindu uh, storytelling or <sighs> what is our relationship with all of this that's around us and if we never ask that um i think it makes us less in our humanity because um there's a playwright named edward albee famous playwright um and died uh, just uh you know a couple of handfuls of years ago uh, and yeah, fascinating place 
uh, one of the best American playwrights. And in, in one of the plays, he has uh, two enigmatic figures, a man and a woman, talking to two other enigmatic figures, a boy and a girl. Uh, it's called The Play About The Baby. <laughs> and and it's all very symbolic and all very uh, abstruse. It's, you're not sure who the man and the woman are. Sometimes the man and the woman seem to be the same character. They may be iterations of the boy and the girl. There are all kinds of things going on. But the man asserts more than once, you are not alive as a human being until you have scars and wounds. Now, uh, I don't know that I would subscribe to that, that character's interpretation, but I think that one could say that our stories describe our scars and our wounds, and how we come to terms with our scars and our wounds as reflected in story sometimes guides us. And I think that if we think it's uh it, some people would here i'm going to go into territory that i'm not going to bash anybody about but i think some people would say to me no you can't go there we don't talk about that but if you think really hard about the stories that that we internalize if you for instance internalize the story about uh, any story about an ancient flood and uh, a family a person a husband and wife whoever were, were saved and maybe a couple of the children and the whole world if we emerge from that we can't know what we know about genetics and not have serious questions. No, it must be others have emerged from the flood too. Well, there are lots of flood stories in, around the planet, and some people like to deny those and say, no, there's only one flood story. But in fact, there are older flood stories than, than the Genesis flood story. Okay, so maybe there were lots of survivors and somehow that repopulated the world. But yeah, or you can go back to Genesis itself and with Adam and Eve. All right. Adam and Eve, oh, oh, okay, they're propagating and, and making children. Well, oh, but yeah, but then there were those those beings east of Eden. Well, what other beings were there that we didn't hear about? And were they west of Eden and were they <laughs> north of Eden? You know, and so, so you 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 can't help but think about these things, hmm. and that makes you wonder what is it that we are, uh, and and could we be uh, that which is more than human? And so on and so on. Yeah, I think that, you know, it comes back to the, the truck engine again, right? <laughs> you know, you, you look at it. You're and, not going to let me escape that. <laughs> it's one thing, right? <laughs> so look at the thing as a whole and just, you know, go about your life and know that your car has an engine and yep. that it works. And when it stops working, you just get a new car and you go about your, your life or whatever. It's another thing to look at it and then go to a museum and look at, engines from 20 and 40 and 100 years ago and then read about steam engines before that and then read about things before that and, and go well how did these how did these things develop right there there had to come a point where an engine was no longer an engine right and you go the same thing with these these cosmogonic stories right you go well there had to come a point where a human wasn't a human and where life wasn't life and where the universe was not the universe, right? And these are the things that twist our, our tiny brains into knots. They they do. And and I'm and I'm actually glad you brought me brought me back to this because while it's 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 staring into my navel, this experience of rebuilding helping my brother uh, rebuild the truck engine, but it is so metaphoric and I've been dwelling on this this week. I have two experiences this week with my brother, one experience with his friend who's a remarkable contractor. 
and my son, we were be, re, re, we were tearing apart an old um, set of steps on the landing and making a deck with much better steps. And it didn't elude me in, in that process, which I was, I was holding boards and handing, you know, sort of the gopher helper. Um, and, and it, and it didn't elude, but when you're the gopher helper, then you watch how the process is working. The, uh, my, my daughter-in-law and my son and the contractor and my brother were together formulating the vision of this porch of this deck and how it could be done and and within the, the scope of time that they had and and within the, how much materials you want to buy and that kind of thing and they shaped this thing from designs on paper which changed as they were working and and uh, i i came to find out that this uh, uh, contractor um, who has been my brother's lifelong friend. They went to school together, but I've gotten to know him more, and he's a really fascinating human being. And we talked philosophy. He he was talking about essential questions. He was talking about the same kind of things he says. He often spoke speaks to pastors about. Well, um, where is heaven? And he takes the view that that the earth that we are living in right now is hell enough. That's so where's heaven? or or. Where did everybody come from? And those, I, I was just, we had a marvelous conversation during coffee break. Uh, while, uh, but I watched him. He made a, a precise cut after precise cut, but there was one cut he made that was precise. All the measurements were right, and somehow the ankle didn't turn out. Couldn't figure it out. It was driving him nuts because the thing didn't work. Well, he finally uh, figured out a way to to fix that, but he still couldn't come to and to my knowledge, still hasn't. What happened in that one mistake? But that one mistake led to an aesthetic redesign that was really nice. Was that mistake designed to happen? No, I, but but we we work our way around things, and to see something come out of nothing, <laughs> you can't. I can't not think about that. And then having my hands in the guts of this engine, handing being the nurse to my brother's surgeon, handing him tools. Uh, not sometimes giving the right tool, watching it all, looking at how you can't access this and can't access that, and asking the engineer questions and all. But, but the but the existential fact was that in his in his circumstances, there was no way around. Can't sell a truck when it's empty like that. When it's got an engine that's not working, still paying the truck and and so on. When you have to confront the irremovable uh, situation of this truck has got to work. If that means pulling an engine out, getting a new engine, putting the pieces back together, it's got to work. And when a human being confronts a problem directly that cannot be over, can, cannot be bought out, cannot be um, just fixed with hope and wishes, that's when we're at our best. Our, do we handle it with a sense of humor? Sometimes. Do we handle it with a, a sense of anger? Sometimes. And frustration? Sometimes. But then there's successes when the engine comes out of the block. And, and to see a man, uh, you know, my father was a mechanic, I saw him doing this a lot, but to see my, my brother and I, the two of us, in some situations then, he had other help, working at this, spending an hour to take one bolt out, 
that just gives you an, a, a really renewed sense of the passage of time and the uh, irremovability of certain problems. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's and that's what cosmo yeah that's a good is about. It's a really good encapsulation of how cosmogonic baselines affect us on a personal mm -hmm. level, right? Mm -hmm. We've taken something that is this vast abstract thing that's beyond us, and we've looked at our personal everyday lives and how they're affected in this way. And I think what a lot of what it comes down to, in some regard, is is creativity, right? Mm -hmm. And whether it's looking back at the past at things that we that we feel we don't have any control over now quantum mechanics and observational effects and things might might have changed that a little bit but we don't feel like we have any control over cosmogonic origins when we look at our everyday life it's something that we do have control over and how do we address that we have to come up with creative solutions to problems all the time yeah and so yeah. that kind of leads into the next question which is what are the implications of finitude versus infinitude, right? So with <laughs> with cosmogonic origins, right, there's really only two step only two routes you can take. And the original scientific, you know, scientific cosmogonic um paradigm was that space is just infinite and it's always been there and static. And um that that's a really handy definition for science because then you don't need any sort of point of creation or creating cause or anything like that mm -hmm. so it, there's infinity right and infinity in any form whether it's infinite density or infinite time or infinite space or whatever that has a different effect on how we view things whereas opposed to saying no this thing had a defined beginning yes and i think that that plays into what we were just talking about because as humans the examples that we were just looking at our creative efforts and our views on things we are surrounded by finite things we are finite things <clears throat> all of our creative energies and forces go into finite things but the creative process itself is sort of this infinite strand that that stretches back throughout history for us mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so what what are the implications of of finitude versus infinity well, you, you've suggested a response right within that, but I'm thinking, you know, if you go back to the ancients, which we often do just to anchor in philosophy, Plato referred rather vaguely um, uh, to a demiurge, um, some urge of the universe that has some vague starting point, but Aristotle said there's no starting point. Anaximander was working at that and pretty much, no, it, the, the starting point wasn't an issue in ancient philosophy. And I think uh, there's something um, attractive about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, if, 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 because if, I understand why we go after it now with all our instruments, because, but, but let's say we get back and we actually find the starting point. We still haven't figured out, yeah, but that's the starting point for this universe. But if we think there are other universes that, you know, then why are we doing this? Well, because we must, because we must ask, ask questions. And there's the infinitude <coughs> part for me is that the humanity is built to ask questions. Hmm. or has evolved to ask, whatever our source, source doesn't matter. 
we ask questions. It's what we do. And, and we get puzzled by our questions and want to ask more questions, which is what you and I have done for years and will continue to do. But it makes us more alive and it makes us more aware of things around us. And it makes us more humble and have a sense of humor at the same time because we know, as Socrates said, we know nothing mm-hmm. in the scheme of things. Um, so the, it, if it's finite, I find it more, uh, I think I'd find that more frightening personally, just personally, than infinity. I find infinity uh, remarkably um, sustaining and, and embracing and calming. There's solace in infinity for me. And I've, I've puzzled some friends across the years with that because for most people, the spinning expanses of endless galaxies, I think, are just too much. For me, I, I, of course, it's too much for me, too. I, they ask me how I feel when I come up, drive across an ocean, uh, a bridge, and I come to an ocean the first time in my life. That's pretty daunting. Mm. It was back in the day. But yet, there's all of this that we don't know. There's all of this that we could know. We, we, if this ends, do we still end? Are we somewhere else? You know, it, The idea of infinity means anything might be possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, to Russell, Bertrand Russell, and the rest. The idea of f- the, finite, the, the finite, here's what the finite does. You asked for me personally, I'm not speaking for any of the, the philosophers. F- f- the finite means <clears throat> um, something important too. We know we have a finite amount of time in this world, in this construction of whatever it is that we are. So, we we uh, spend that time, but then we immediately trip into capitalistic terms. How do you spend your time? How do you save your time? How do you bank your time? I don't think so. <laughs> you know, it's the, the model doesn't work. So there's time. I'm living within it. Uh, the things that I do, if they if they feel like they they feed me, please me. Um. Uh, um make me understand things more, make me want to understand things more, even though I'm going to have a limited time. If I, it, 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 There's a balance that it can help establish within you, and I don't say that I've achieved that balance at all, but you know, Epicurus warned us that there's no point thinking about death over and over again because it's going to happen, and you're essentially wasting your time by doing that. I think all of us do occasionally go, go to that, but, oh, did I paint enough pictures today? I should have painted more. Well, then you've totally lost the... Mm-hmm. The, the attitude that should be embra- you're embracing with your painting. Um, did I tell somebody I, I love them enough? Did I did I remind somebody? Well, okay. The idea is: Have you said that to somebody who needs to hear it? That how many times you did it, and 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 oh, I didn't. I forgot to do this. I forgot to do that. Finitude can make you very nervous. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I'm I'm going through the the Tao Te Ching again. Mm. Which is mm. is great because it's it's so short you can visit it over and over again and you need to because it's exactly what it's yeah. advertised as right it's very simple but in its simplicity the more you look at the things the deeper they become mm-hmm. but that's part of the message of it right is this idea that as you're living your life the more you're you know. <laughs> The, the capitalistic sort of viewpoint on on spending your time and and that sort of thing 
if you're thinking about life in that regard, then you're not really living right. You know, no. part of living right is is being in the moment of what you're doing without obsessing over it, right? And yeah, I think that that's it comes back to the paradox again, right? With this this finitude versus infinitude thing. Science, right? Science wants the universe to be infinite because that just it it puts off a lot of problems that are raised by um you know, by origins of things, right? Mm-hmm. Now, for religions, religions seem to say that, you know, finitude is not a problem, right? Because we have a creative origin, right? Well, God created everything, or gods, or whoever. But it really doesn't solve that problem, right? Because you still have this thing, well, well, what was God doing for this whole time before he created the universe, right? Where was he? What was he doing? (laughs) Or, or, Or who made God? Yes, exactly. So... The questions don't go away, but it just gives you kind of a convenient excuse to not have to think about them. Mm-hmm. But logically, rationally, there's there's still a lot of things that aren't addressed. But so, but then when you look at things as a whole, right? So now, if you if you're taking a scientific paradigm and you find that it appears the universe is finite, right? And again, there's a lot of mystery and uncertainty there. Well. Maybe there's an infinite number of other universes, or maybe the universe did have a starting point, but there is no ending point. You have you have solutions that that can get around some of the the scariness of of the the finitude of it, but it doesn't really it doesn't ease that that uncertainty, right? It's there's still something that sort of like gives you that that it, exactly. existential angst. Think about the, the, the I, I love cartography. Just again, layperson, I'm interested in many, many things. But I'm, you know, another thing that I'm not expert in by any imagination. But I love maps. I love the artistry of maps and and the vast variety of kinds of things that maps represent. But right now, I'm thinking about the quintessential map that most of us remember about the the world being flat, and then the the, the various sigils and signs and symbols and dragons. Here, there be monsters. Hmm. My question is always, yeah, okay, fine, but what's beyond the monsters? Yeah. Or here there be monsters. Well, sure, because there are going to be things that aren't like us at all. Um, but how are they seeing the universe? <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't want to be gobbled up by a dragon. No, but the the fact of it, if if there were a dragon, does that mean that somehow I'm supposed to avoid that? And, and what? Who made the dragon? And yeah, I was watching a really interesting documentary yesterday, Reasons to Believe, and uh, they covered a lot of this, talking about, you know, the human brain is set up to avoid type 1 errors, which type 1 errors in psychology refer to, um, you know, believing something when you shouldn't believe it, whereas a type 2 error is not believing something that you should believe, right? And so the example that they use is, you know, out on the African safari, right? If the grass rustles, well, if you assume that it's just the wind and it's a predator, you don't live very long to pass on your genes to the next generation. Whereas if the grass rustles and you think it's a predator, but it's just the wind, well, that no harm, no foul, right? You assume it's something scary, so you take evasive action and you live to pass on your genes to the next generation, whether or not there was any difficulty. 
So knowing that about us, about our evolution and, and how we, how we see things, our, our pattern recognition systems, our, you know, adversity to the unknown, seeing things that are more dangerous than they are in the unknown than may not exist in, in hopes of self-preservation. You are basically extending that out into the universe, right? Mm -hmm. And going, okay, well, you know, if I, we're, we're set to see patterns out there. We want to look out into the universe and see order, see a low entropy configuration, probably see a creating force of some kind, um, and then try to act in such a way as to preserve our, ourselves, right? And I think that an important part is recognizing that that is, that's a human perspective. That is not an objective perspective. And that's yes. what Hawking and Hertog were talking about yes. in their book a little bit was Love that, that book. <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're thinking about this anthropic principle, right? Like, oh, how it's amazing how fine tuned the universe is for human life. And like, what are the chances of that? It's this huge coincidence. And we talked about the Boltzmann brain, right? Hmm. Dumping out the barrel of pennies and they all land heads up. What are the chances, right? Well, that's one way of looking at it, but it's the human way of human looking way. at it. The other way of looking at it is that, well, given orders of time and orders of space and orders of, of magnitude that we are unable to comprehend, these things were inevitable to come about, essentially. And so, therefore, it's not some giant coincidence or something that's highly unlikely. It's something that just would have had to happen uh, for us to be here, right? Mm -hmm. And it's it's really two different ways of looking at the same thing. I had a friend call me up this week. I, I uh, gave him existential physics for his birthday, uh. and uh, he called me up, uh, you know, angry about about one thing that she said about time. <laughs> and I said, "Good," because I I felt the same with that book. I felt the same way about. There's a lot of things where I go, "Oh, this is really cool," and a lot of things where I, go, well, I don't agree with this, mm -hmm. right? And so we were walking through. He goes, "Yeah," she says. You know, if if you were born at one point and then there was a supernova and there was an observer and they were all equidistant, and then at your death, there was another observer that was equidistant between you and that supernova, that technically you're being born and dying at the same time that the supernova is exploding. <laughs> and he said, but that's not really true. That's just a matter of perspective because those observers are farther apart in time. So just the light hasn't had enough time to reach them. Right. And I go, well, yes, that's one way of looking at it but. from a human perspective, right? Uh, with the idea that there an arrow of time exists, right? But if you look at the block universe, if things already exist and things will exist in the future and everything's determined from initial states, then rather than your life being this continuum, you already we already were born in the past, right? That's incontroversial. I was born in the past, right? Well, what seems strange to us is that the future might already be set, but it's not all that strange from the physics standpoint, from what the math tells us. So if I'm already dead out there somewhere, and if time is just the humans, the human brain's way of understanding the, the universe that mm -hmm. we live in, but it's not actually a real part of, of the universe, then it is totally possible that I could be both alive and dead at the same time during one event 
based off of where two different observers are. That's just special relativity. It, it, and it is. you sort of begrudgingly accepted. We go, I don't know. I still don't like it. Go, well, you don't, <laughs> you so don't you have don't to have, like it. You don't have to like it. Just think about it for a bit, you know, and maybe yeah. you'll warm up to it. Maybe you won't. But, yeah. but the, like we've been talking about, just wrestling with the questions is a big part of being human, right? That's, that's part of humanity. And that's part of what makes these sort of stories special. Yeah. So yeah. if we expect our understanding of cosmogony to change in the future, is there a point in considering philosophical implications of the current paradigm? I think so. That's a good question, really, because you're saying, okay, so where does philosophy come in? With the, with the science of cosmogony, but also uh, where does it come in with the, the theological or religious or just general narrative storytelling? If we examine what we seem to privilege about ourselves or what we recognize about ourselves or characteristics of our culture that are, if we, if we don't, if we can step back from a story, and say, okay, yes, this is an, a story that many, many, many people accept and they don't want questioned. But if we can still step back from it and ask questions about what it says about us and our expectations and our desires, then we understand ourselves a little bit better. And, and in understanding ourselves a little bit better, there might be the possibility of of looking at things in fresh ways. And if we look at things in fresh ways, there might be the skinchiest possibility that maybe we'll make some things better. Yeah. Our stories will still tell us of whatever cosmogonic framework exists. When my granddaughter is an ancient woman, uh, that's not so much the, the that's a given. Mm. There, there are going to be fresh science stories uh, there may be fresh interpretations of ancient sorry there may be discovery of 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 tablets have yet to be read that people won't want to read because they'll say oh no it's changing the story yes because things change the the essential element in this for us that philosophy can reinforce and make palatable is that things change and, and we are living in a time when there are there are a significant number of people who want to reject that notion and so it's vital that we recognize that change is part of human beings for us not to change is for us to die as a species hmm. not a racialized species as a species if we are determined to say that la 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 nothing is changing around us we can just keep doing what we're doing, then we won't. And the world won't care because something else will emerge in our places. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it, it comes back to what I was saying earlier, right? We might be finite and everything around us might be finite, but this thread of, of creativity stretches throughout our history. And that thread of creativity is the thread of progress, yes. right? They are the same thread. And so I- Not I got, linear progress. Right. No, 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 absolutely not. But I talked with Elsie Kramer. I was in a, uh, a guest on her show this past week, and the episode hasn't been released yet, but it was one of the most fun conversations I've had as a guest on another person's podcast. Hmm. But the first question she asked me was, what frustrates you? The first question, <laughs> what frustrates you? <laughs> and um, and I've, I've talked about this with Amanda off the air. I said, you know, I think what frustrates me the most is, you know, 
being on my own show or coming on to other people's shows and talking about things and then getting off the air and, you know, not living the way that, that I, that I appear on the shows. Right. I go, because life isn't a 30 minute TV show where you cut out all the fluff and all you see is the cool things and the things that contribute right. to the story. Life is this messy thing that goes back and forth. Yeah. So we all make mistakes. We all say things that we don't do and, and, and vice versa and, and this sort of stuff. But you do them in order, in order to, to progress. Right. Mm -hmm. And that led us into a conversation about, about that very thing and how science, you know, a lot of people who disbelieve science, their frustration with it is that it's not infallible, right? That things that have been said in the past don't hold up in the future and that things that are, are, you know, but she goes, that's what progress is, right? Science, science isn't a set of facts. As a matter of fact, you don't ever prove anything in science. All you do is disprove things and, and offer support for, for various theories, but it's something that's always in motion, right? Yeah. And I think that people who are anti-scientific or, or prefer a religious paradigm to a scientific one are under the illusion that their religions stay the same. But I, I just read a, a really fascinating book recently, The Evolution of God by mm -hmm. Robert Wright. Mm -hmm. and, um, and he goes through the history of, of the world's major religions and how they've changed over time and how they've borrowed stories from one another and have changed various aspects that didn't hold up well over time and, and this sort of thing. And, and I think that, you know, and he says it in the book as much, he goes, you know, the religious people are, are, are probably going to be angry with, with me for saying things like this, or, you know, are going to be um, hostile or, or saying that denying it, that sort of thing. He goes, but they shouldn't. He said, because these things are, are beneficial. He goes, this is progress right when you started out with religion you know and you look at a lot of these major religions and the gods are angry and the gods are telling you to kill all of your enemies and mm -hmm. do all these things mm -hmm. and then as as people expand and globalize and start to see their lives as non-zero sum things where cooperation is beneficial and they become more accepting and and you know more uh you know favorable to other people's views morality our view of what's right and what's wrong and how it's good to treat other people and how it's good to do these things yeah. advances right yeah. and so that's you know religions do evolve the same way the science evolves the same way that people evolve it's what you were just saying nothing stays the same right, right? nothing ever stays the same even if you want it to stay the same even if you perceive it staying the same or you think of something in the past as being a static state, it never was. Not, it not, never was. Not a house. Even if you never touch your house, it changes around you and probably not for the, the best, right? Not not in an engine. Mm -hmm. Not in not in a life. All you gotta do is look in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> not in uh, because every time something happens to you, the scars, the wounds, the joys, that can't you toward a different state. <laughs> And you take it in and put it in with all the other experiences that you've had. If you're thinking about it, if you're alive and awake and thinking about it, and and it, you can't help but transform. Yeah, and I think that's something that that gives us um, some pause thinking about cosmogony and and if the possibility of a finite universe, right, is this idea that at one point there was no progression, that there was a static state, 
right? I think that that's what sort of unsettles some of us that that understand this progression and creativity that stretches through time. Uh, that that's an interesting view, but I'm I'm just gonna say, you know, how how do we know it's a static state just because it didn't create the universe that we know? If if it's if if it's darkness and there are waters, universe waters really universally, we don't okay. If it's if it's dark matter. We don't know what goes on inside dark matter. Yeah. So when we say static state, I know what you meant by that, but really it's not even necessarily static. There may be dark matter universes that existed before we did that we can't even begin to understand. Right. And there's actually sort of breaking scientific um, paper that came out this week that might be the first evidence for string theory. They might they think they might have found oh, the, I this. the first candidates for strings. Oh. where they found gravitational lensing of distant light that acts in such a way where they don't think that there's a galaxy or any big piece of matter behind it, but rather a cosmic string, which is thinner than a proton that travels the entire length of the universe that supports some of the quantum theories of how the universe sprung into being. And that, oh, I got to read this. Yeah. So, <laughs> So even before the universe, right? If you know, string theory has been working on this, this sort of unifying theme of what what happened before the universe, and that and that demonstrates that there was motion, there was vibration, there were things happening even before what we view as being the be all end all. Because if there's one takeaway from the conversation we've had, it's that our we're not objective, right? We don't understand it all. There's no way we can understand it all, and so. It doesn't take away from the value of thinking about these questions, but we also have to think about where our place is in the universe when we're thinking about it. That's it. That's it. The, the contractor who can't figure out yet why a cut went the way it was, but still thinks about it, is thinking about the next cut mm. and how things fit, and therefore is, grow is growing even though the answer might not be able to be found. Exactly. So until next time, keep pondering.